Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I believe Colorado profoundly rejected Trumpism and the chaos that Trumpism represented. Michael Bennett is the senior Democratic senator from Colorado. A famously purple state, in the weeks leading up to the 2022 midterms, polls showed a much closer race for Bennett, and Colorado seemed to be a place where Republicans might actually flip a few seats. But as it turned out, that was not the case. Not only was there no red wave in Colorado, there was something of a blue wave there instead. Bennett defeated his Republican challenger, Joe O'Day, the more moderate Republican to come out of the GOP primary, by a whopping 15 points. 15 points. It's hard to believe. So I'm not going to get to go to Colorado and cover close races anymore, am I? Well, I still think we're a swing state. I really do. Well, that seems like a bit of a stretch. Last month, Democrats retained all statewide offices in Colorado. Governor Jarrett Polis won re-election by 18 points. And Democrats also kept both chambers of the General Assembly. The results in Colorado point to a trend that continued in 2022 and can be summed up in what I realized after I wrote it is the world's worst nursery rhyme. Red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer, and swing states are fewer and fewer. Apologies. By some estimates in the 2024 presidential election, there may be just four or six swing states, and Colorado is not going to be one of them. Bennett resisted and even reversed several of the trends that Democrats have worried about in recent years. We won non-college educated voters by four points in Colorado, while Nationally, the Democratic Party was losing them by 13 points, won Latino voters by 70 percent. And those unaffiliated voters, 40 percent of our electorate, we won by 25 percent. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I caught up with Bennett in a conference room in his office up on Capitol Hill. Hey, how's it going? How are you, Ryan? Good to see you. Good to see you. The walls are decorated with striking color photographs of some of Colorado's most beautiful vistas. We talked about the lessons Democrats might learn from his victory, Bennett's plan for the lame duck session, which could include a dramatic showdown with his own party over tax policy, whether he might run for president again. And it turns out I was the first reporter who ever asked him how he voted on Colorado's referendum to legalize magic mushrooms, which passed last month. You ran for president in 2020. Thank you for noticing that. Not, <laughs> I, not, not many I covered your did. campaign. I think that's probably the last time we talked. <laughs> they always say that, you know, once you run, you, you, you sort of uh, become addicted to it. What's your opinion about whether President Biden should seek re-election or not? Uh, I think as long as he feels like he can do it he, and wants to do it, he should do it. That's what I think. He's, he's going to have to make a judgment about that. But 
I am incredibly grateful that he ran the last time because I think he was the only person out of 330 million people who could have beaten Donald Trump at that moment. I really believe it. Is that the case? I mean, a lot of the conventional wisdom is that if he believes that's the case again, he'll do it. Well, I think it is likely that he believes that that's the case again. I think it's likely that he thinks that he's going to be up to it again. Yeah. And I think he has earned the right to do that. You know, I'm glad I ran for president. I learned a tremendous amount about myself. Some what did my, you learn? Some of my, well, one of the things I learned is that I think this won't surprise you when I say it. It sound like a politician, but I ran on a bunch of stuff that I knew I was going to have to go back to Colorado and run on, assuming I wasn't successful in the presidential effort. And that gave me the opportunity to think about a lot of a lot of policy issues from the child tax credit to immigration to climate. And I think all those things stood up when I ran for re-election in the Senate. There in other was, words, you're going into a Democratic primary. It's a difficult, it's a different right. electorate than yep. Colorado. Exactly. You, you may jam yourself back exactly. home. Exactly. And you I knew, I knew that I was going to have to be in red counties in my state saying to people in those counties that even though I'd run for president, that I'd run on an agenda that I not only could defend in every county in Colorado, but actually in many places celebrate in red. And, and, and for me, that was an incredible artifact to bring out of that process. And I'm still committed to trying to pursue that vision for the country, which really does at its fundamental core have to do with building an economy that when it grows, it grows for everybody, giving people a sense of opportunity, as do, I said earlier. You, do you think it, it, it forced you to sort of think through a whole bunch of issues because being president is different than being senator that you hadn't been forced to do? It did. It absolutely did. And it, it gave it gave my team the opportunity to do that too. And, and I think that was a really valuable discipline. I learned you know, about some of my weaknesses as a candidate, and I think I got stronger as a result of what I was doing, so. What was the toughest thing to sell in Colorado that you took a, maybe a risk on? I actually don't. I, in, the, I think, in the primaries. I think that the, I mean, you are. I don't. I don't. I you aren't like a defund the police guy. You no, 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 <laughs> no. It's the positions. You're, I mean, I have some different positions than the administration, and and some and those are consistent with the positions that I took in the in the campaign. I'll give you an example. You know, I am a lot more interested in figuring out how, as a country, we make sure that every single kid that graduates from high school graduates with the skills to earn a living wage, not just the minimum wage, yeah. as a priority, than I am for giving, you know, co college debt for, for people that have had the chance to go to college. Yep. I think that my positions on immigration, which come from being part of the Gang of Eight in 2013 that wrote the bipartisan bill, you know, that had as a fundamental tenet of the bill, yes, pathway to citizenship for 11 million people, yes, the most progressive DREAM Act that ever been written, yes, all the farm worker stuff that we did and all the visa stuff that we did, yeah. and on top of that, $40 billion of border security, not for Trump's medieval wall, but, but as an acknowledgement that the American people expect to have a secure border, yeah. expect that we are going to be committed to the rule of law as we do the very important work of moving people out of the shadows and have a, a chance for citizenship. So, And on energy, I'd say that's another place where in Colorado, you know, we are beset by the ravages of climate change every single day. I mean, literally, yeah. fires. Yeah. 
and un inability to insure stuff. And you can't see the mountains. The Colorado River is half full of water. So no one needs to lecture me on, on the need for us to transition. We need to transition. But we also have to give the American people confidence that there's a plan and that we're going to move from where we are today to where we need to be net zero in 25 years from now. You can see that with the Europeans, you know, in their fight against Putin right now, the effect of having those molecules turned off. And I think giving people a rational sort of view of what that future looks like as we make that transition. I saw recently where you were asked to, about running for president and you I'm not going to ask it because it seems like unless you've got a, a new position, you're not ruling it out. If Biden doesn't run, you, you're not ruling it out, is, is, the, is the comment I saw. Let me know if that's incorrect. But as someone who talks to a lot of Democrats around the country, without naming any names, do you know any Democrat that is going to run for president, whether Biden runs or not? I do not know of a single Democrat <laughs> who is I not, not Pittsburgh, no, not Polish. Honestly, not. I don't know of a single one. Uh, and I think everybody, I think, you think for virtually everybody is would take the same view I would take, which is Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. He is the president. It, he, his intention is that he's going to run again, and I expect that he will run again. If he decides not to run again, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that will look at it. Including and, you? Well, it's too early for me to tell. Let's talk about 2022, the race and the lessons and, and, and what happened out there. I think my polling had me at six for a year, six points up. And I figured I'd win by four because it would close, which it always does. And as you said, we ended up winning by 15. Jared Polis won by 18. We won everything there was to win. State legislative races that we never thought we were going to win on the outer edge. Uh, counties like Douglas County and El Paso County, which are massive Republican counties, which no Democrat ever, you never lose those counties by 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 less than 20 points. And I lost them, but by eight and nine points. Huh. We won we won non-college educated voters by four points in Colorado, while nationally the Democratic Party was losing them by 13 points, won Latino voters by seven, 70%. And, um, so you didn't see and those unaffiliated voters, that 40% of our electorate, we won by 25%. How does that all compare to 2016, in, in your race in 2016? Um, that the, was the margins are just dramatically uh, bigger and we did not win non-college educated voters in 2016. Wow. So that's a big bright spot for Democrats yeah, on that one good. demographic, especially. And you didn't see the Republicans eating into Latino supports in Colorado? Not, no. In the, the nationally, I think Democrats were at 63 or 64 percent with Latino voters, and we were at 70 in Colorado. Wow. What do you attribute it to? Other than the excellent quality of the candidates that were running. <laughs> Uh, He's also this guy, you know, the, Dave was the, supposed to be the, t the guy uh, that was hard to beat. and he was Yeah, exactly. Moderates. I mean, on paper, the national press detected that he was not, you know, a, the kind of a mainstream Trump Republican. And I think um, he had a profile that was going to be a difficult one. But I think I think what happened was Colorado profoundly rejected Trumpism and the chaos that Trumpism represented. 
the president's approval ratings, President Biden's approval ratings were not terrific during this election cycle. Yeah. But compared to Trump, I mean, Trump is so underwater in Colorado. And I think our state just doesn't, that's not what we go for. We don't believe in that stuff. And so I think that was a piece of it. Choice clearly was a piece of it. You know, the, um, people reacting to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, I think, also turbocharged uh, the the result, I think, in important ways. Just to give an indication of what the race was like, what issue were, uh, represented the highest percentage of your ads, for instance? I would say that um, our ads were, the the highest percentage would be on the economy and in and so, and some different and I'm including in that things like ca- um, capping drug prices for seniors, having Medicare negotiate drug prices on behalf of the American people. But we also did an ad on supply chains where I said we were trying to, you know, fix that with the semiconductor legislation that we passed. Well, so not no, not a huge percentage on choice. No, that yeah, I'd say that? that was the second. That was number two. No, that was that so was the number. Yeah, it was number two. What's I, I think is so funny about this election, one of the strangest elections, the results are very, very <laughs> unusual and very difficult to analyze because the regional differences were pretty profound. I mean, if you look at New York, like the issue, like crime really right. paid dividends for Republicans yeah. in, in New York, very did not do that elsewhere, completely eclipsed decades of history about what happens in the first midterm of a, of a new president, right? given inflation and what voters were saying about the economy. I mean, it's just very, very confounding. I noticed in the couple of days before the election was over, the moderates and the, and the, and the left groups in the Democratic Party did the thing that always happens at the end of the election, put out the memo saying, you know, here's, <laughs> here's why we're going to lose. Here's why Democrats, what are we, you know, my friend, my friend Matt Bennett at that third way, I know, I'm sure you know the guys yeah, at third way, sure. they put out their memo saying, you know, Democrats lost because they were too far to the left. Yeah. The uh, Sun, uh, Sunrise and some of the other groups put out their memo saying Democrats lost because they were too moderate. And then those memos were sort of all retracted. And the, the usual fight about who was right in the party, I feel like it hasn't happened in, in a way because there's been a lot, a lot more celebrating. But what, what, what are the lessons? I think the lessons are, I mean, when I'm most optimistic about where we're headed and, and hopefully not being Pollyannish about it, I think the lessons are that the American people are weary of an economy that for 50 years has worked incredibly well for the top 10% and hasn't worked for anybody else. I think people have said, and certainly the people I represent before I was even in the election were saying to me over the last 14 years in my town halls, Michael, we are killing ourselves at work, killing ourselves. And we can't afford some combination of housing, healthcare, higher education, or early childhood education. We can't save. This is before the inflation, you know, and the guy I was running against, whatever he was on choice or anything, what he was, actually what he was, was a stone-cold, trickle-down economics guy. That's what he believed in. Yeah. That's, what he, that's the Bible he subscribed to. And people in Colorado don't want that. So, so one big difference compared to the last two Democratic presidents who got creamed in their first midterm, it seems like the, uh, the, uh, the 2020... The 2021-2022 agenda and legislation was that passed, you didn't run away from any of that. You ran on that. Whereas, was it different in 2000, 
um, 10. Totally different. Right. With that. Yeah, I was ACA, running. ACA wasn't. Yeah. What, yeah. Obviously, you weren't running in 94, but a lot of Democrats ran a, away from the Clinton budget and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. In, was that a big in, difference? It was a huge difference. I mean, and I'll give you another example. In, 20, in, in 09, 10, that was the first election I had. I was out there on the eastern plains of Colorado, literally with a slide deck in my hand, saying, this is why we passed the Affordable Care Act. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. This is why we passed the Affordable Care Act. None of the benefits for the Affordable Care Act were yet in place. Right at all right. so it was all and so what we were dealing with was the republicans saying government takeover of healthcare. this is a bolshevik attack on the united states of america we had no data that or, or or proof points to be able to say that's not what we're dealing with here this year very different set of accomplishments and and that we haven't even talked about you know the bipartisan veterans bill that we passed the bipartisan postal reform bill that we passed the bipartisan gun bill that we passed i mean all of which in the public's mind, I think, was in some sense a relief. People saying, oh, we thought we were going to have to settle for Trump's chaos forever. Now it turns out you can actually get some things done. And as I said, I think the specific sort of quality of these things, which were reflecting not a supply-side trickle-down economics, but something different than that, an investment in the country made a difference. In 2014, which is another interesting data point for me, because I was chairing the, D the Democratic right. Senate campaign tough committee. Year, that, tough year to do that. The <laughs> worst year ever. We lost everything. You know, Mark Warner and Gene Shaheen were the outer edge. Everything else, yeah. my cherished senior senator, Mark Udall, lost in that cycle. We had literally nothing to run on in that cycle. So I think this proves that getting things done is helpful. I, we did a show out there about psilocybin legalization. I know in 2012, you were against marijuana legalization. Now you're sort of one of the leaders on making sure that cannabis businesses are, uh, you know, have the right, right banking system and, all, and, and can be exempted from federal law if they're following state law, right? Those are two of your bills. Where did you come down on this kind of, new frontier of plant medicine no. legalization. Interestingly enough, I didn't take a position in the campaign. It didn't come up. It never and came up. You never, were never asked. Up, never came up. And But Colorado obviously supported it. How did you vote on so it? So we'll continue to... Uh, we'll How did you vote in the voting booth? Well, I'm going to keep that to myself. But Colorado passed it, and we're going to, you know, we're going to lead the way. Were you glad that it passed? Um... I'm glad the will of Colorado's voters have been heard. Is this a good, but in general, is this a good thing, this experiment? I think, here's what I think. I think that the experiment, I think, is a good thing. There are veterans, you know, yeah. in our country that, who believe that they will benefit from this. Yeah. But we learned with the marijuana stuff as well that passing it is just part of what has to happen. You know, you've got to have regulations in place that make sense. You know, you've got to make sure that it's administered in a way that makes sense. And that's going to be true whether it's marijuana or whether it's mushrooms or whether it's anything else. And there's always that concern at the outset. And I look at it from the point of view of somebody who was the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the effect that these sorts of decisions that we make the effect they're going to have on kids, especially yeah. if there is no proper regulation. You know, at the beginning of the marijuana stuff, 
you couldn't tell the difference between a jelly bean or a, that was that had THC in it and one that didn't. You know, that to me as a parent and as a school superintendent, that's not acceptable. And we're going to go through the same thing with this latest incarnation. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy that you were never asked that during the whole campaign, which me, which shows that it just wasn't a like a, a major no uh, yeah. Yeah. fault line. Um, it passed with a significant margin. Um, I came away, we did a whole show on it, spent a lot of time talking to people out there, and um, I came away from that reporting sort of of having a tough time figuring out where I would have come down on yeah. it in terms of yeah. how it was written. and Exactly. And that's, and that's yeah. I think, those are the kind of challenges that you confront when you're, when you're passing stuff by referendum or by plebiscite as opposed to passing it legislatively through the process that can allow people to design it in a way that, um, that actually will work and make sense. But that's the work that has to be done now, and Colorado will do that work. Let's talk about the, the, the lame duck here and what you think um, can and should uh, get, get done. Well, I think the, the bill that we've got this week can and should get done on gay yeah. marriage. I think that's critically it's gonna important. going to pass, right? Yeah, it's going to pass, and that's a, great, that's a great thing. It's going to pass sort of without a lot of drama, it yeah. seems, right? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a sleeper issue at this point. Yeah, I think we're going to have three amendments to pass. I know it does tell you. On the other hand, we had that horrible shooting last week in Colorado Springs, which also tells you that we're still in this battle. But I think it's important for us to pass that. I really hope that we pass uh, an omnibus bill, not a continuing resolution, so that we can actually pursue funding priorities. One of the ones that I continue to push is the child tax credit. That was an enormously successful experiment in America. It said to us, you know, we, last year, we, you know, when we passed that as part of the American Rescue Plan, we cut childhood poverty almost in half. We reduced hunger in the United States by a quarter. I mean, What's not, happened since it stopped? What? What's happened since the, it stopped? What is that, is those poverty rates have gone up and, and, and hunger's gone up? The lines in soup kitchens are now longer than they were before? And what that's in a way that makes it all the more tragic that we didn't extend it because because it actually did what we said it was going to do. And, you know, I just don't I think that the poorest kids in America deserve to have, yeah. the, the, you know, the same benefit that families that make four hundred thousand dollars in America make. And we should make it fully refundable. So I'm continuing to work on the theory that we are going to get to an omnibus. And if we get to an omnibus, there are going to be people on the on the Republican side, they want to extend the R&D tax credits, something that I support as well. I don't think we should be doing that unless we figure out a way to extend the child tax credit. This is the richest country in the world, and we have the third highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world, which is staggeringly um, unfortunate. Um, There's another piece of legislation that I've been working on with Mike Crapo and some others to try to see if we can get the, the Farm Work Modernization Act across the finish line. We have farms and ranches all over America that are in danger of going out of business because we have no predictable supply of labor. The, yeah. the Farm Workers Union you know, has been hanging in there for two years on this bill to try to keep, create certainty for their membership and to 
create a, a pathway out of the shadows for the people they represent. And I'm very worried that if we don't pass this in the lame duck with a McCarthy-led House of Representatives, there may never be another chance. It's basically a guest worker program? It's more than that. It's, it, it's enhancing the H-2A visa program and making more of a year-round program, as well as right. putting people that are in the workforce on a pathway to uh, a green card and to legalization. Because right now, a lot, what, a lot of the, the, the workers, it's, it's only seasonal for some of the... Exactly. Yep. So and there are all kinds like a... of problems with that because, you know, if you're an employer, you got to fill out the forms for one person for one season, for another person for another season. This is a, what we're proposing is that we modernize all of that and, and make it much less. If you're like a dairy or a year-round farm... Exactly. The seasonal thing doesn't really right. help you. Right, exactly. And dairy is a big, f actually, focus of, of these proposals because all over America we're in danger of losing our dairy industry, yeah. including Price. in Colorado. Just to go back to the CTC, what's the, just spell out the process by which you think you can get this accomplished. One is, a decision has to be made about the omnibus versus right. the CR. Right, exactly. The four corners all said um, that they all believe we should be trying to get an omnibus done and and that we obviously have to get to a deal in order to do that, I think we should get an omnibus done. And that is the context in which the child tax credit could get done. It's hard to see how you could get it done in the in a CR context. And I and I have always believed that in the end this would be bipartisan, that it wouldn't be just the way I had designed it, that the Republicans would make some changes to it. Mitt Romney has been an incredible partner on this bill, and I think he will continue to be. Who else? What are, what are the other Republicans that might? I, I don't. I'm actually not in a position to be able to say <laughs> that. I mean, I know some people that are interested in it, but they haven't yet made it public themselves. And so just to give us a little flavor about what it's like being a senator with a priority like this, and you go into the Democratic lunch today, do you, do you get up there and, and, and make the case for this? Definitely. Does everybody have a chance to speak? Like, do you have a plan going in? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I always have a plan going in, and I don't always speak, but I, I mean, people know when I get up, they know what I'm going to talk about, and that's the child tax credit. That's the success that we had with it, not we Democrats, but we America had with it. There's a lot of stress in this economy, you know, among people that are being left behind by the trickle-down economics that Reagan really started and that we haven't sufficiently addressed. This, in the end, what I think is we've got to create an economy again in America that when it grows, it grows for everybody, not just the people at the very top. On the way to doing that, there are some important policies we could put in place, like the enhanced child tax credit, like the enhanced earned income tax credit, that could give families and workers some breathing room on the way to getting to that to that economy. Where's the pocket of resistance when you step into that lunch today? To, on that? On the Democratic yeah, side. Yeah, I, I would say the pocket of resistance is people that have other priorities, you know, some other issue that, that, that they care about. I believe that this policy was uniquely successful in terms of, you know, generations of progressive work that's been attempted here since the 1960s. And that's, to me, it deserves a privileged position because of that and because we've sought work. You've got the data now to show. We've got the data to show that it worked. And it not, didn't just work here in America, but in other countries that have similar child benefits. Um, what we see is that the workforce participation rate actually increases in those countries. 
which is one of the objections my friend Joe Manchin has had to this. He's, he worries that people won't, this will disincentivize people from working. All of the evidence is the opposite of that, and that doesn't surprise me at all because what people spend the money on, among other things, is daycare so that they can stay at work, so they can keep, keep adding hours so they can support their kids. My opponent in this race said a couple times that the problem with Coloradans was that they had to get off the couch you know, and, and stop being lazy. And that's not the problem. People are killing themselves, including the parents I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools, you know, many of whom had two or three jobs. No matter what they did, they couldn't get their kids out of poverty. And it wasn't because they weren't working. It's because the economy wasn't working well enough for them. And when you have a situation where people lose a sense of opportunity, they feel like they can't move their families forward, that's inevitable. It's almost inevitable in human history that, that that's when somebody shows up and says, I alone can fix it. You don't need a democracy. You don't need the rule of law. You should expect your public sector and your private sector to be hopelessly corrupt and hopelessly bankrupt. And if you, and if you don't, you're a sucker for believing that. That's the dark vision that Donald Trump ran on and won on. And I think that the way to address that is by giving people a sense of opportunity again. A real sense. We almost got very far without talking about Trump, which I think is a sign of how things maybe are changing. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry I brought it up. No, it's, so. well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, I just, it's just, he's uh, so central to every political conversation for the last few years. Um, but I do feel like there's a kind of fading, maybe. I feel like that's true. I mean, I think that's, I think that's more, as we were talking about earlier, just a fundamental aspect of what we just went through in this off-year election. I mean, you said earlier something interesting, yeah. which is which is how this defied everything we know about political history. And I yeah. think that can be said of many things in our era. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. think yeah. when 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 Barack Obama was standing there in Grant Park in Chicago with his family, and I was and I was sitting there being superintendent in Denver watching that, thinking to myself, man, have we reached the promised land. This is yeah. just incredible. And then not realizing what forces of reaction were going to set in, even though that would have been entirely predictable in our country's history, but not realizing it. And then being shocked that Donald Trump was elected president. That's when I stopped thinking that I knew, had any idea what the political outcomes were going to be. And this election, it's the same thing. I mean, had they not had the drag of, of, of Trumpism, of Donald Trump, of you know national Republicans, instead of in, indicting Trump for what he had done, I don't mean literally indicting him, but indicting him for what he had done, apologizing for what he had done, like my opponent who said that he bore no responsibility for the events of January 6th, that was profoundly rejected by the American people. One question about the Georgia runoff. What does it mean for this institution if Democrats have 50? versus 51 votes. Speaking of Joe Manchin. <laughs> well, I think that we have all lived through, all of us, every single one of us has lived through a longer 50-50 Senate than any, I think, in history, Amazing. American history. Considering, not to be grim, but considering the average age of <laughs> I know, I know, exactly. Uh, and I'm, you know, I turned 58 you're yesterday. The, I got the here when I was 44, <laughs> so, but I hear what you're saying. I think that would be better for everyone. It's going to relieve pressure on everybody. It would be actually, frankly, probably better for Republicans and Democrats. 
And I really hope and believe that people in Georgia are going to know what an amazing senator Reverend Warnock actually is. I mean, he is not, you know, as my wife from Arkansas describes people sort of run of the mine or run of the mill. He's an extraordinary, extraordinary leader here. And he's been an extraordinary leader on the child tax credit. He's been an extraordinary leader on voting rights. And I hope he has the chance to come back because we need, we really need his leadership. In, in the Democratic caucus, it, it'll 51 votes will move the balance of power where? I mean, you're going to have a Republican House anyway. Look, it's still going to be, we're, each one of us is going to count in terms of, you know, how do we move the country forward? 51, I just think it really, it's just modest to relieve some of the pressure. From my vantage point, the most significant thing that we have is the opportunity to continue to approve judges, which is going to be very, very important over the next four years. Would you go as far as a few Democrats I've seen recently, like Howard Dean and Terry McAuliffe, and say the Democrats have won three elections in a row with Trump at the center? Let's hope he's the nominee in 2024. Well, I, I, don't, I don't want him to be the nominee. The worst four years of my life were when <laughs> Donald Trump was president of the United States. You know, and I, but under the I assumption that you the, know he's the devil you know and, you can, and the Democrats can beat him. I think that what we have to do is everything we can do to show the American people that we're fighting for working people in this country and we're fighting for the middle class in this country, that we are. And that's more important to me than who their nominee is. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in this election, it would have been helpful to us, I believe, if we had actually reversed the Trump tax cuts for the rich, 52% of which went to the top 5%. That's a defining characteristic for our party that we refused to, we refused to accomplish. You know, we didn't extend yeah. Bennett Brown and Brown Bennett, which are those two tax cuts for working people for the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. You take those things together with a bipartisan infrastructure bill and the other work that we talked about earlier, and you begin to see a, a difference in the parties that I think can't be explained away. And a guy like Ron Johnson, just to take one person who's, you know, who, who won his race, who could have lost his race, I think it would have been very hard for Ron Johnson to explain if we'd reversed the Trump tax cuts how he voted for the Trump tax cuts, 52% of which with the wealthiest people in the country, but voted against the child tax credit, which went to 90% of the kids in Wisconsin. And if we're going to win in these hard places, we're going to have to create that kind of a contrast. And this year, we were able to, I think, head in that direction. But in 2024 and after that, we got to do a better job. Thanks for doing this. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. I really Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is our senior producer. And it turns out this is his last show on the podcast. And we want to thank him for his incredible work on this show and wish him the best. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of Audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer and head of Audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening.